Good afternoon, Mountaineers. Beely here, back in the wonderful new studios here at 3MDR, 97.1 FM. I'm very excited, the special radiothon treat this afternoon. We'll be talking to the one and only Mr. Leo Sayer, producer, Leo Sayer, I should say, producer, singer, songwriter, etc. Going to do another tribute to the great Peter Green, who passed away on July the 26th this year. Um, be uh, heavily blues-based music and uh, the usual variety that you expect here on 3MDR. So stay tuned, please, and stay safe. Roundabout, avec moi. Come on, Melba, come on. 
3MBR 97.1 FM that was the uh, wonderful new single by the one and only Mr Leo Sayer now um, in July this year July the 26th I was very sad to hear the passing of Peter Green and I did a, um, a, a unreliable memories uh, tribute to him with my f- guitarist friend Dave Plotel in London and um, decided and I saw a fantastic uh, Peter Peter Curran or Crowan put me onto a great uh, video on YouTube. A lot of American and other artists doing a tribute to Peter Green, and uh, one that stood out mostly was Mr. Leo Sayer. Good afternoon, sir. How you doing? And uh, yeah, you're really passionate, aren't you? But just let's briefly talk about that uh, city lockdown. I love the lyrics, man. Um, yeah, well, it's 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 basically uh, you know I've got half my band, uh, my Australian band, come from Melbourne. My engineer, um, Damien Young, runs a studio there. He's not even able to go to his studio because it's more than five kilometres away from where he lives in Melbourne. So, oh, right. Well, you we've, know, got, we've got I've 25 got, k's now, so he might be able to. Yeah. That's right. No, no, finally, today, he sent me a message. Hey, I'm at the studio. I'm updating all the firmware now. <laughs> so he was quite happy. But, you know, it's been tough for everybody out there. And um, we've been very lucky. I mean, I'm New South Wales, so in the southern highlands and we've been a lot it's been a lot easier here it, it, but you know the, the it did hit badly and I, I i have to say i support dan andrews i think he's done a great job um there's a lot of people who you know don't think so but i think in hindsight they're going to look back and say my god so many lives were saved and 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 so it was controlled very well you know so now of course things are getting back to normal but i was thinking of my friends when i wrote that and and i was thinking how tough it was for melbournians you know and when you see a city uh, in lockdown as much as that i mean like empty streets you know nobody going around no shops yeah. open no cafes and and this really vibrant city just brought to a halt um it's a scary sight so i i kind of I just felt I had to write it. Uh, and the song came out in me. I don't know. I didn't set out to write it. It just kind of, it, it happened overnight. You know, I was lying in bed and it was, the words just came to me. Yes, I love, I picked up just a few lyrics. Uh, nobody's fault and because it's a virus. There's been a lot yeah. of conjecture and arguments on social media and all that. So it's nobody's fault. Of course really, there will it? be. Yeah, there'll blame, always be two sides to everything. <laughs> blamed by the poly, bloody politicians and all that, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, but you know, you know, everybody's only trying to get over it and we're all trying to save lives. So at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, you know. And, and it's been proven now. I mean, look back to our old country, Graham. It's going mad there um yes. coronavirus is having a second third wave almost you know yeah. and it's uncontrollable and they don't know what to do i mean they're shutting down manchester now and a lot of wales as well cardiff and swansea yeah, are just literally curfew cities so they're going through the same thing as as melbourne have got has gone through but i think they're going through a little bit too late it's a kind of delayed reaction over there um and and i think that melbourne's done a great job by locking down early um, because now we're going to see the results that it's going to be a very clean city and everybody will be able to party again, even though they've missed the Melbourne Cup, you know, and yeah, all they are oh going to, yeah. looks like they're going to miss the big celebration that they would have on, and, and this week for the final, you know, this weekend. Yes. Um, but we've got to get it right, you know. Yeah, yeah, I was talking to a friend in Liverpool the other night, she was freaking out, you know, she said, oh, we're going to have a curfew. I said, yeah, done that. All the pubs and shops, yeah, all, exactly. all the shops and pubs are closed. I said, yeah, done that. Yep, you know. done that, Tick. Yep, yeah, yeah. 
Limit, limit. Yeah, my friend Paul Cashmere, you probably know Paul from Noise 11 and yes. doing a lot of on, 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 online um, things and online radio as well. Um, you know, he's, he, he's, he monitors it every day and it's there on social media. So we've all got a kind of an idea of how it's going. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, this is going to be something that people will write books about and stories about in the future. You know, this is a moment in time rather like going through a, a world war, you know. Yes. It's, it's a very serious issue. Um, and I just thought, you know, look, I'm, I'm a songwriter. I'm still writing songs. I'm still active. I've got my own studio. I thought, well, why not? You know, let's do this. Another lyric, can't see, I think I've got it right, can't see your smile behind the mask. So hopefully we'll still see. That's, well, that's true, weird, that's true. You just, you can still see the eyes smiling, can't you? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm just getting a mask done at the moment of my own. So um, rather like, you know, from the show must go on, the mask must go on, it's called. Yeah. And a couple of friends of mine and me, we've designed it, put it together. We're just getting it printed and yeah. manufactured at the moment. But we're going to have a, a, a competition on social media. What's Leo saying behind the mask? Um, and of course, we're going to have some really rude ones. We're going to, but the best ones, I'll tell you what. Doesn't matter if they're rude or if they're funny or if they're wise. You know, mm. we'll we'll give out we'll get out free masks to the ones who get it right. Yeah, that's one of my. We'll get the best, yeah. you know, the best the best solutions. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll do a quick trip or well, a bit of a tribute to Peter Green. I really enjoyed your um, yes. interview on that uh, YouTube. What was it? Um, uh... Yeah, well, it, it was a it was a guy looking back on collecting a lot of collections he's a, he's a guitar guy and he was c uh, collecting a lot of recollections of peter because you know peter was someone who really was kind of like miles davis or, or keith jarrett you know uh, in jazz and and like say bert yanch or bob dylan in folk music you know peter was an icon of the blues guitar uh he really was someone special because he played with you know that passion that you get in Robert Johnson and BB King, and the fact he was English was kind of almost strange that someone could have that amount of feeling. But he was an incredibly intense guy, um, and I was very fortunate being a fan of the band, discovering them by chance really, um, because I went to see John Mayall play, and I thought I was going to go and see um, uh, yeah. Eric Clapton playing with them, and he'd left the week before, and I didn't even know. And there was this interesting looking guy with short hair and big sideburns playing a fender strat through a selma treble and bass amp which was a very rare thing you know that was the thing that not many people had professionally because it was the first guitar amp that you bought you know yeah. but he hadn't even changed to the marshall yet and there he was i think he'd only be doing the gig the gig about a week and he was playing with john mayall but um all of us guys who love the chicago blues he was playing it so authentically. He was really playing Buddy Guy and, and Otis Rush, because a lot of those were the songs that John Mayall was performing, songs by those guys. And he was playing them absolutely just like the originals. Um, and his sound was very clean. It wasn't like Eric with that sort of slightly distorted sound that we'd got used to with him you know this sound was clear and biting and spiky but it was delivered with such passion and a couple of instrumentals he played that night and we were all we were all transfixed or I mean me and my mates in all of our duffel coats in 1966 watching this guy and and going crikey what a talent John's done well this time 
And um, and then, of course, Fleetwood Mac came out, and I was a bit of a fan because that first Fleetwood Mac album, you know, with the shot down the alley with the cats yeah. on the cover, Dog in the uh, dustbin, was, yeah. was just such an amazing album. Um, yes. The whole band was amazing, you know, and so I went to see them play in a club called Jimmy's in Brighton, and amazingly, not many people turned up. Nobody had really heard of them, so... Uh, I was there with a couple of mates who left early and I ended up hanging around just by myself with the band. In fact, those were the days when the band, there weren't many roadies, so they were all packing up their own gear. So I was unplugging Jeremy Spencer's amp and guitar and I was helping Peter put away his guitars in his case and in their cases. And um, I got talking to them all. And um, uh, it was it's remarkable. You know, here am I, a young fan, and I'm talking to these guys, and they're treating me a bit like an equal. I mean, they were yeah. making jokes with me because that's how they were. But basically, you know, I had... I had uh, I, immediately, I, I, I knew Peter, and he knew me. And the next gig, they remembered me, you know, and, and I went backstage to see him, and they said, hey, how are you, mate? You know. So, so I, w- I followed the band very closely and followed Peter very closely. And... You know, when it got to about a year or so later, and all of a sudden Peter is bearing his soul uh, in, in 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 some unique songs, you know, like Need Your Love So Bad and these sort of songs. I was kind of very proud that I, I knew this guy, so I could turn up to gigs that they were doing and say hello to them and hang around with them, you know, just like hanging around with some of the guys. And by that time, I was playing harmonica in a lot of bands as well, so there came a unique chance when... Um, Duster Bennett, the very famous blues yes. harmonica player, was doing an album, and Peter was playing on that. And I, I got invited to the session because uh, I knew Duster, and there were there I was with Peter. And uh, Duster had to go and do some interview or anything, so Peter said, "Come on, let's play." I got my harp out, and we all played together. So at least I can say I played with Peter a couple of times, you know. So those were my memories. I mean, I got to know him personally, and I didn't know him before everything went crazy with you know, the children of God in America and, you know, Peter's revelation to give it all up and give his everything away, give his money away, literally walk away from the business. I I didn't know him uh, very much after that time. Uh, I saw him a few times, but I didn't even go up and speak to him because he didn't look like the same guy for me, you know. Um, but my recollections, yeah, were, were, were of this very intense guy that I was so lucky to see firsthand and as I say you know really close saw the way he played by jamming with him and Jeremy Spencer was of course hugely improvised by the uh, or influenced by the great slide guitarist Elmore James wasn't he yes yes, yes. absolutely absolutely well he was doing a, a kind of an Elmore, Elmore James you know my heart beat like a hammer yes all those That's Elmore James songs you know um Sunny uh, yeah the sky is crying and all of those he used to do them so well and um, Jeremy played an old K guitar, I remember, with a big old bashed up thing. But the tone was fabulous, and he had that down. And not a lot of people know, but Jeremy also could do the Bo Diddley thing. Oh. You know, where Bo Diddley played through that old magnetone amp with the, the phasing going on. And So Jeremy used to do that as well. They would do a Bo Diddley thing in the early Fleetwood Mac shows as well. And he would do, you know, Bo Diddley, ba, baby, diamond ring, and did it so well. I mean, he was, he was a gem. Yeah, you mentioned in that interview. You mentioned the fantastic album from 1969, John yeah. Mayall Blues Breakers, A Hard Road, a classic. You know, John McVie, yes, yes. John Mayall, 
Peter and Ainsley Dunbar on drums, yes. Wonderful. That's right, that's right. I'll just um, read out what I read today. In June 1996, Green was voted the third best guitarist of all time in Mojo magazine. Rolling Stone ranked him at number 58 in its list of 100 greatest guitarists of all time. And Green's yeah. tone on the instrumental The Supernatural, which is... Uh, mm-hmm which is on track 11, was rated, Beauty, as, beautiful was rated as one of the 50 greatest of all time by guitar Of player. all time, solo, yeah, solo, re- solo uh, recordings. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, later on when I was in America um, and I'm working with Larry Carlton, you know, who, yes, who was well, an icon over there. Yes, I love the Crusaders, about, the Crusaders, yeah, said, oh man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Larry would. Larry turned around to me one day and said, did you ever know Peter? I said, man, did I know him? I played with him. And in the early days, he said, oh my God, he said, that guy, he said, now that is a guitarist. If I could do what he does. And I'm thinking, Larry, you do it every night. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And the other one who really loved his playing and, and gave him great kudos was B.B. King. Yes. And, you know, to get it from B.B., because Peter was always kind of, you know, uh, for, 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 for Peter... B.B. Uh, was the master, as to many people. So to get that feedback back from him, and I once played with Buddy Guy as well, and oh, Buddy, oh. Buddy mentioned uh, Peter as well, you know, to me w- yeah. when we were talking. Yeah. You know, everybody loved him. Yeah. Everybody loved his playing. Jeff Beck used to talk about him as well a lot, you know. And there was something about the way that Peter played and his... You know, it's all in the, it's, it's all in the pick. I mean, if you, if you listen to great guitarists... People like George Benson, you know, I mean, you could give them any guitar. You could take a guitar off the rack. It wouldn't have to be set up. You could give them an amp, and they would, they would sound like George Benson or Peter Green, you know. The great ones have got it in the fingers. And the, the American blues wasn't really recognised until it was brought, well, yeah, brought to the attention of the public by English uh, blues bands like Fleetwood Mac and Chicken Shack, etc. Yeah. Well, look, there, were, B. B. there really were proponents. BB really appreciated that, didn't he? BB King really appreciated that, didn't he? Yeah, but there were there were some other white boys in England that were playing blues guitar. I mean, Mike Bloomfield, you have to think of, um, you know, playing yes. with with uh, uh, Al um, Cooper and uh, um, you know US, with the Electric yeah. Flag and those bands. Um, and and of course Bob Dylan, you know, Mike Bloomfield playing. He was a really, uh, you know, he was a real white blues player. But the thing was, I think America was largely, uh, I always felt embarrassed at the way it treated uh, the poor black kids from the delta who played the blues in the early days you know they kind of rejected them and it took europe and england and i've got to say a lot of the cases well must go credit goes to scandinavia um and those countries really supported the black players when they came over so you know you would get a chance to see muddy waters and and buddy guy and um and, uh, you know, Sun Seals, one of the younger guys. You you get to see all those guys play. Uh, Otis Rush as well, you know. You get to see them play in Europe, mostly because they'd been invited and their trips paid for by little companies like Sonic Records in Sweden, you know. <laughs> and they they were the ones that um, that forked out the money to bring those players over. And it was the British guys who heard them play. You can you can see there's a great video of the of um, Howlin' Wolf um, playing um, on a on a tour um, with Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon and all those guys. And on the stage, looking at them, is Brian Jones and, uh, and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, just just like uh, uh, fawning over them, you know. So, so the music was coming over to England, and that's how they heard it, you know, and that's how people like Peter heard it. Yes, um, you're a 
yeah, you, you're a huge blues fan, weren't you? All that stuff. Sorry, recollection since we've uh, since we've uh, organised this interview. Like all that Blue Horizon stuff, you know, it's just fantastic. Yeah, it? well, I, I, I look. I was, you know, in the in the late '60s, I was playing harmonica mostly in folk clubs, and I, I would get to play with people like, say, Victor Brox, who was the the, the singer yes. with the Ainsley Dunbar band. Yep. Soup Money used to get me doing gigs with him, and. Um, and uh, oh, so many of them, you know, that I, hung, I mean, I did gigs with Phil, uh, uh, Ginger Baker and Bill Wyman and Jack Bruce and people like that. You know, we, everybody was playing. I did a, a gig once with Keith Richards, you know. So, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, if you were hanging around the blues scene and you were playing mm. and singing, you, you would bump into these guys, you know, in clubs. Yeah. So it was all very close and... Um, there was nobody kind of like, none of the bands were standing over everybody saying, we're superstars, you know, it wasn't like that in those days. Uh, if you got your name in, in Melody Maker or New Musical Express, then of course you were looked on and revered as someone very important. But I don't think anybody ever said that someone like, you know, was a traditional pop star, you know, or a rock star in that, in that mm. genre. It was all pretty normal, you know, guys would just walk in and play and... I mean, that, I got my first break with a, a, a folky guy who later became more rock, John Martin. Oh, and, wow. <laughs> yeah, and one night, John Martin's Stop playing it. in a club in, 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 uh, in London called Les Cousins, a little folk club, and he's holding it, and they give a chance for musicians to get up and play, you know, and from the, from the, from the audience, and I fancied having a go at my harmonica to see what it would sound like in the club and I went, Mr. Martin, do you mind if I play? And he says, yeah, what's your name? You know, wrote it all down, Gerard Sayer as I was then, Jerry Sayer and, um, and I played and I seemed to be everybody in the club stopped and turned around because I, I grabbed hold of the microphone and played this really loud train blues. I think I woke up all the people that were falling asleep <laughs> at the back and um, John Martin turned around and said, well you did alright, you know, come back again. So I, that was my first ever real performance on stage probably 1968 yeah. 67 all them names you mentioned a while ago um last time yeah. i saw peter was at 2010 Byron bay blues festival he was brought out here by yes. i think it was michael watson and, and Cozy yes. Powell, i think and uh, yeah was, I, I, I tried to contact him but he probably wouldn't have recognized me anyway but anyway on that same bill was jeff beck buddy guy yep. john mayle so it's fantastic and john, joe bonamassa so it's a great great uh, I, I think um, it's a shame that byron stopped being a yes. pure blues festival. Yeah, I know, yes. Because, and we have some great players here. I mean, Maya, uh, Mia Dyson, you know, yes. there's some great blues players in this country. Uh, there's a few really good harmonica players as well, you know, I've got to say. Um, but, you know, we've got some really great players here and people still love the blues. I think as a genre, it stands alone, you know. Um, and it's a shame with Byron that it stopped being Byron you know, blues festival, as it were, and they still call it that, but it's not really a blues festival, is it? I think anybody who plays at Byron should be made to play blues. Yes. And that's it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah some friends of mine live up there, they said, one year, they said, we've got tickets to Byron Bay, come up and... Oh, that's a couple of years ago now, and there's nobody sort of really appealed to me, so I didn't go anyway. Mm. So it's causes... changed to a very international... Yeah. A very international rock and, and singer-songwriter type of list, you know? So but good for them if yeah. they've made it into a bigger festival. That's fantastic. But um, but I just loved it when it was the Byron Bay Blues Festival. So um, this is 3MDR 97.1 FM. A great pleasure to speak to Mr. Leo Sayer, and we're transgressing very nicely. 
into your 50th anniversary of being in the business next year, Leo. Yeah. Crikey, where's the time gone, mate? I know, it's scary, isn't it? In 1971, um, I got my first break meeting David Courtney, who was my co-writer. He was... We went to an audition, me and my my band in in Brighton. We lived in Shoreham by Sea in Sussex, um, just near Brighton, the sit- now a city, of course, in those days a town. And um, there was an audition being held. It was advertised in the local paper, the Evening Argus. So we turn up, and there's all these other bands, and I must say comics, and you know, and, and you know, jazz groups, and ev- folkies, and everybody playing through the day. Well, we were one of the last on dragging our equipment into the hall and we we set up and we played me and my friend max chetwind on guitar um we'd written a couple of songs for it so we thought that we were a little bit ahead of the game and lo and behold at the end of it david courtney just turned around and said well you're the best thing i've seen all day and um he turned around to me he said did you write that song and i said yeah yeah he said, well, why didn't you write some songs with me? Because that's really what I want to do. I don't want to just be uh, an artist manager or agent, which is what the audition was all about. You know, his father uh, said to him, you know, you've got to do something legitimate, son. You know, typical, isn't it? And and he said, you know, so if you run an agency, I'll (laughs) give you all the money to back that, you know, I'll back that. Um, and it, or if you become a manager. So he pretended to be my manager, I think, for a while, David Courtney, but that wasn't really what he was into. So, you know, we used to sit down by his old piano and, and just pour out songs. And then one day he turned around to me and he said, you know, I used to play drums for this guy called Adam Faith. And I went, Adam Faith, the famous singer. Yeah, pop oh, star from the 50s. And, and he said, look, I think we should go and see Adam because I'm still friends with him. And... Um, we should play him some of these songs and see if he can, uh, you know, give us an idea of uh, if we could get a break. Um, so we did that. and We went up to see Adam and honestly, it was a most amazing meeting. I mean, I sat in one room while David played him all the songs because he didn't really know me. So I waited in the hallway and then Adam comes running out and says, right, what are you doing on Thursday? This is a Monday, you know, and I said, nothing. And he said, right, you're in the studio. Get the, get the band together. I'll see you up there. <laughs> so all of a sudden we were there at Olympic Studios and we cut a single um, with the group Patches with, uh, and I, by this time I'd, I'd played with the name and become Leo um, and cause they, cause his, Adam, mostly because Adam's wife said um, he looks like a little lion and there was a TV show called Leo the Lion so yes. I had this massive <laughs> head of hair so I became an instant Leo and I liked it actually because I couldn't think of any other pop singer that was called Leo. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe it would it would be a bit unique, and it was kind of interesting to play with the idea of you know all of Adam's promises of he would always say you know you're going to be a millionaire, you're going to be a huge star, I'm going to put you right at the top. So I thought, my God, you know, am I going to be worthy of all this? Well, if I'm if if I play the part of being Leo, maybe I can pretend to myself that I'm that good. Yeah. So it helped me make the transition from being Jerry Sayer, you know, nobody, to maybe Leo Sayer who's going to be a somebody, you know. And um, so anyway, we, we went to the studio and we made the record. I think the Who were working in the next room and our drummer wasn't very good. So it has to be said that Keith Moon played the drum part <laughs> on the Patches record. No. No. <laughs> and. And when when we played it back, Mick, the drummer, just turned around and said, yeah, I sound good there, don't I? He knew, you know, yeah. <laughs> he, knew, he knew that we'd replaced the drums when, while, his, while he went out to lunch. But, you know, it was all cool. Yeah. And the single came out, of course, it sold, 
barely 25 copies, I think, on Warner Brothers, but we were off. That was it, you know. So 1971 was the year. That was released on Warner Brothers in England as a single. Um, we then went on to try and make the Patches album. There we got into a bit of trouble because, you know, we suddenly learned, out, learned that how Adam was a real perfectionist. And Dave and I have been writing so many new, you know, more new songs. But Patches fell by the wayside and I became Leo Sarah's solo artist. So the, the album that started off being Patches' album turned into Leo Sarah Silverbird and was released two years later. Um, because basically before that, um, we bumped into Roger Daltrey and he wanted a solo album and David and I had a lot of songs and he loved the songs. So, you know, the logical thing was that uh, Adam and David produced just as they produced my album. They produced an album for Roger and we held back my album even though it was finished and um, put Roger's out first, which was a great ploy in the end because... Roger really sort of sang my praises and told the world about me from his lofty perch because he was probably the best pop singer in the yeah. you know rock singer in the in the in the in the world at that time and you know when he went to America and giving it all away the song David and I had written was a single everybody's talking so who is this guy tell us about him you know so well. Roger unwittingly became my PR man yeah. So Which was fantastic. <laughs> so by the time Silverbird came out in 1974, everybody knew about us, you know. Or well, 73, rather, yeah. 73. So were you on Chrysalis Records then? I always remember seeing you on Top of the Pots for the first time. Yeah. Just as a Piero clown. And a clown, yeah, the Piero, yeah, the so, white-faced Piero. Yeah, well, the first performance was on, on the Old Grey Whistle Test. Oh, yeah. And Roger had been on about uh, a month or so earlier, um, singing uh, Giving It All Away and One Man Band, and... And I think that logically came around to, well, we should get Leo on, you know, if his record's coming out soon. So basically, I was there basically doing that in early 1973, you know, with Bob Harris in announcing me um, to the world. Whispering uh, Bob. <laughs> yeah, the Whispering Bob, yeah. The first performance that I ever did um, on TV. And um, Silverbird was released at the same time. Um, I was appearing as the Piero because we had this idea of doing it on for the album cover from a famous film that I'd seen, a French film. Ah. And it was a nice transition because I could, I was very nervous at the time, very shy. Yes. And um, I could hide behind the makeup for, we did it for one year, you know. Uh, we went to America with it, went all over England, toured with Roxy Music in England. Oh, and well. then went off to the States and everybody was fascinated because the image kind of brought... You know, it was a good gimmick to bring everybody in, you know, yeah. um, as, as audience and press. You know, they were talking about this strange guy, you know, singing, and uh, singing, wow, with these amazing yeah. songs. And, and singing won't let the show go on, which is very apt for the uh, costume, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. well, exactly. It was all part because it felt like circus, you know. Um, it was, I mean, the Piero is more about French theatre, but the, the, it, it looked, it, you know, the feeling of, of the whole world being a circus and the guy in the song is is singing about all the wild men, mad, big cigars, gigantic cars, throwing tomatoes at him at an audition, which was basically the theme of the song. So it went down very well, you know, and, um, and, and, and Silverbird became a hit, mostly because of all the clever moves that Adam had made, you know, putting Roger's album out first and, 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 and also giving me some time since that period 50 years ago next year. 
um, you know, I had that year or so to really sort of hone my craft right. and get used to working with David, you know, in the way that we were writing songs together, get used to working with some good musicians, you know, and better musicians, getting a better band together than the Patches Boys, bless them, um, you know, when my hometown boys, um, and, and, and getting into the, you know, getting myself really professional. So by the time it came out in 1973, as I say, I was really ready for it, you know, and and I could I could handle the stage, and I could I knew how to write songs, and I knew how to perform. Yeah, as I said to you the other day, my brother was working at Chrysalis Records in Oxford Street. Um, what period was that for you, Leo? Well, it, it was the the deal was done. Sorry, I meant to say that in yes. the, to answer to your earlier question that you. Okay, um, the, the the deal was done with Chrysalis Records because when we had everything ready and were ready to go after Daughtry's album had come out. Um, we, Adam really wanted to go with Warners in America, and which was a great idea because Joe Smith was a very dynamic record man, and you'd be on the same label as Van Morrison and Little Feet and Ry Cooder and Frank Zappa and Alice Cooper, you know, all these wonderful artists. So, so uh, Randy Newman as as well, you know. Um, so it was a perfect label for me. But what happened was that was strange was when Joe came over to London, he said, look, we're making some huge changes with all the European team. I think I'd love to sign Leo, but I would say, say why don't you get him a, a, a deal in England with a different company? We've been working with these young guys um, called Chrysalis, and that was Chris, uh, Terry Ellis and Chris Wright. Now, I'd already been, they were a, a booking agency before that, and before they were a record company. And they used to look after, yeah, Jethro Tull and 10, ten years after, yes. and uh, a lot of those, you know, those bands. And I, they used to book concerts for us. So we kind of knew them a little bit. We knew the two guys. Um, so Adam went to see them and said, look, you know, uh, Warners have recommended you. And I think they fell out of their chairs because they never expected. They were a, a small independent label. Mm. And I don't think they expected... Uh, a, a, an endorsement from the great Warner Brothers in America. But, you know, this was the recommendation, so we went with them, and I was with them right from the first album. And uh, it was a, basically a 10-year deal, um, or, or 10 albums. We did 10 albums, and, and then I continued with them for a little bit. I don't think it was quite as happy when I continued with them, uh, the, the, the arrangement, because their their eyes had gone on to different things. And I do think that Terry Ellis, by that time, wanted, as he did, to split from the company and, and change it all. And Chris Wright was more into, you know, uh, moving into different a a areas of owning radio stations and even a football team, yeah. you know, so that was... That was they, they were they were changing their their, their modus operandi, but a, lo a lot of people did that, didn't they? You know, yes. look at Virgin. You know, first that was a record company with Richard, um, and then all of a sudden he wants to run an airline. So you know, <laughs> everything changes, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, the record label. Yeah, okay. but those early days at Christie's were fantastic, and I was there to as well as a senior, um, if you like, uh, Christie's artist. Um, helped nurture the careers when the Boomtown Rats came in. Yes. And what was Paul Young's band? The oh, trying to remember oh, their name. Yeah. But the, Paul yeah. Young was in this fantastic band as well. Like, really. The, uh, Q Tips or something was it? The Q Tips, yes. exactly. So I mean, I was there to help all those bands, and you know, they pulled me in as a senior artist. Go and see the Q Tips. Give them, give them some tips, you know, and and you know, go and see Bob Geldof, and you tell him, tell him what to expect, you know. So. 
Bob was kind of like, um, you know, he, he was always phoning me for advice, you know. Hey, Leo, what do you think of it? Which was weird, because by the time Live Aid came around, um, I went up to see him, and he said, yeah, go away. You weren't, you're not interesting. Yeah. But that's typical Geldof, you see. And I saw the, <laughs> saw the wonderful Frankie Miller at the... Uh, round, Frankie round, was fantastic. At, at the Roundhouse, I saw him chalk fire. Yes. What a gig, man. Yeah. Well, look, it was a fantastic roster yes. of, you know, really young creative artists. And like I say, a lot of those had come from the agency side of the Chrysalis group and, you know, had moved into when it became a record company. Of course, you know, we have to factor in the fact that by the, after rumours had become such a big hit, record companies like to turn around and try and tell bands what albums they should make. Marketing came in, in other words. And I think the record industry changed at that time. But, you know, I have really fond memories, especially for the first, you know, five, six or seven albums, all the way to, shall we say, living in a fantasy in 1980 with, you know, the record company would never tell you what to do. They would just be thrilled that you brought in some creative material. And they would always get behind it. They were like fans, you know. They'd, they'd, um, they'd just endorse everything you did. My goodness, what a career it's been, uh, Mr. Leo Sayer, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And what, what period were you at um, Island Records? You would have met some interesting folk at Island Records. You were an artist there, weren't you? No, I wasn't. No, yeah, I was a, I was a, a, a graphic, graphic artist. artist I think you're yeah, right. working, well, they were, I was working for an agency or, or a studio, and, um, and they were one of the clients. Um, them and, uh, um, well, A&M Records, quite a few record covers I used to do, and one of them was... was was Island and also BNC and Trojan, which were mm, reggae, reggae labels that yes. Chris Blackwell, the yes. head of Island, had. So on one side he had his rock um, albums, but on the other side he had artists like Millie, you know, with My Boy Lolly yeah. Lollipop and Rod, and, Rod um, Stewart on harmonica. Yeah, Toots and the Maytals, all these one. So I used to do their record covers, and it always used to be funny working there because Chris would come round to the studio and spend an afternoon there and bring all his holiday snaps. And we had to make record covers of them yeah. because he was the boss, you know. Yeah. So he'd bring in these slides he'd taken of palm trees in Jamaica. And I don't know what he was on because most of the time they'd be all fuzzy and out of, out of, out of focus. But we would, we would turn them into, into covers. And the other one that was great with Ireland, we did Club Scar. And um, yes. I did the Club Scar uh, um, covers as well, which were fantastic, like bright pink and bright blue and bright green graphics. And we would go mad on those things. But at the same time as I was doing that, I was also involved with Nova magazine with a guy called Harry Pecanotti who did all the, um, the Pirelli calendars, you know, so that was fun working with him. And I was doing some work with David Bailey as well, some graphic oh, work yeah, while he was doing photography. Yes. Yeah, so, so it was all crossing over. And I was also uh, moonlighting as an illustrator doing cartoons for Barry Humphreys, <laughs> uh, the Barry McKenzie yes. strip. Oh, wow. You know, I was, I was drawing some of that. Um, along with some other artists um, for Private Eye magazine. So, you know, there was always lots going on. It was a, a really creative time, you yeah. know. I mean, we're talking, we're talking 60, 65, 66, 67, 68. Yeah. A very exciting time to be in the music business. Well, the beginning of your Australian connection there, Private yeah. Eye and Barry But Hunt, the weird thing it? was that while I was seeing all these bands get it on and I was going and playing jamming in the evening with people and singing, you know, and, and hanging out with people like, you know, Rod Stewart and Ainsley Dunbar and 
all those guys. I didn't really want to, you know, I remember Rod saying to me early on, you know, you should be up here doing this. You could get a record deal. I said, no, I don't want to know, mate. You know, you just get your money stolen. He said, yeah, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was kind of being warned off. Yeah. I don't. I think Roger Daltrey is probably the first rock star that I met that said, "No, no, you don't have to deal with it like that." He said, "While Keith Moon's going out and getting, you know, completely bamboozled, going, you know, taking every drug he can find, and I'm staying sober so I can sing the next day with the band." Yeah. He said, "You don't have to be a crazy man. You don't have to join their games." And I always thought that you would have to, and therefore you would get manipulated. I mean, I got manipulated in lots of other ways. I mean, Adam ended up stealing money from me, and yeah, you know, and there were plenty of dodgy managers that I've had through my career. But it was never other musicians who did it to me, should we say, or the music industry, or the music, the creative side that did it to me. You know, so so I was quite. I I, I don't know. I think I. I maybe did a good thing by holding on and not going into it too early, you know, waiting until yeah. I was 24, 25, rather than going in at 16 like some people did. Yeah, good on you. I mean, must have seen a few changes over the years. One thing that stands out to me, when I go to a mm. concert, the sound quality is so clear, isn't it? It's just like listening to a CD, isn't it? It's fantastic. Well, yeah, but at the same time, you know, in our minds, we always thought we sounded pretty good. And I mean... I, you know, if you turn up a bit of old film of, like I just turned up recently of me in 1975 at Christmas, I was doing an old go whistle test uh, live with the band. It was, it was New Year and they let us, rather like that Jules Holland Hootenanny show, yes. they let me be the band for the whole show. So we were doing my live set. And I've got to say, I'm listening to the guys, Dave Rose on keyboards, Hugh Lloyd Langton, who was later with, um, with Hawkwind, um, and, and uh, John, uh, oh God, I can hardly remember, John Levit uh, Levit Jimmy Leverton on bass, and, um, no, Frank Farrell on bass, who wrote Moonlighting with me, and, um, and uh, I can't remember uh, all the other, the, uh, uh, the bass player, but... Uh, no, that was Frank, the bass player, but we were a bloody good band, and you listen to the sound now, and hey, it wasn't bad. Yeah. I think maybe only the recording methods weren't quite as good. But, you know, we did sound really good live. You know, if you, if you, in a broadcast, you know, it's just really honest recording. Nobody's doing anything too clever in the studio with compressors or anything like that. They're just trying to get the best sound for the TV. And you can hear it there, that we were bloody good. Yeah, I remember interviewing Brian Cat a few years ago and he said oh we used to have to shuffle to the front of the stage and put your head on your side and pretend to look cool so you could hear what you're playing out of the PA system. That's true that's true yeah you'd, you'd lean to the PA because look the cool. monitors weren't that good no it's it's true but you know but you, you think of the Beatles I mean it's incredible that you can turn up um, you know tapes of them playing and singing now in in Shea Stadium or you know those kind of gigs they were playing in those days, and look, there's not a note out of place. Yes. You know either in the singing or the or the playing. You know they're absolutely pitch perfect. They are so good, and they had no monitors at all. They had the screams of the crowd. They couldn't have heard a single damn thing no. that they were doing, <laughs> yeah. which is probably why they packed it in <laughs> yes, as a live so. act. I think that was yeah the reason. They but it. but you know it's amazing if you actually listen to the recordings now, and there are quite a few of them on YouTube, and anybody out there can can hear them. Boy, were those guys good. Yeah. It's just incredible. The, the, you know, uh, George suddenly pops into the mic, and he's a perfect third harmony. Yeah. Now you know. 
it's not to be underestimated. Okay, he wasn't the the most creative of the of the Beatles in in some ways. I mean, he certainly became later. But boy, were they good! Every single one of them. And Ringo's drumming. I mean, geez, he's just got to be for me. He's the greatest rock drummer of all time. Yep, good. You know what he played and the way that he played it, and so simple but so good. His time and his energy and his dynamic was so good. He's underestimated. Tiny. You know, Jeff Beccari used to turn around to me when I used to say, "Who's your favourite drummer of all time?" He said, "Ringo, Ringo. Starr." Ringo, goodness. And the, most of them will. You know, okay, he didn't have to be technically the same as Jeff Beccaro or or or. or, or James Gads and all those kind of guys, yeah. but boy, did he make it work. Yeah. And um, being copped by every other drummer, you know, his style. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the Beatles. Last time I saw you was in Let It Be, 2006, my <laughs> at the Hamer Hall in, um, in Melbourne there with Christine Arnu and John Stevens. Yes, and of course, yes. John Waters. What a great show that was. Well, John's still a really good pal. Um, we put on a show this year early this year for the bushfires out here in the southern highlands and um we did fire aid it was all john's idea and we just got a lot of you know daryl braithwaite and john paul young quite a few other people came down jeff duff and you know some wonderful musicians we had and bands with us and um it was a fantastic thing john's been a buddy ever since you know meeting him on that show and christine is all is on the abc now as a, as a, as a dj and doing a fantastic job as well so yeah you know you take these opportunities i mean when i first came um to live in australia in 2005 um i think that i got some 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 wonderful opportunities it was all new again you know mm. you think of being you know, uh, uh, should we say just, I was about 50, 55, 56 years old in that time. And, and you think, you know, basically England's telling you that all your career's over, but you come to Australia and you find some new avenues and people so enthusiastic here. Yes. And that's why I came really, it was to re kickstart the career. And it's been fantastic ever since I've been here. I have no regrets. And you, you're, you cover a whole genre of of music in your in your career, haven't you, Leo? And I... yeah, yeah. I think I think some of my contemporaries are very much like me. We've tried everything, yeah. um, <laughs> and and we've got far-reaching, you know, tastes. I mean, quite honestly, I'm just as happy listening to um, Keith Jarrett as as Peter Green. Um, you know, it all makes sense to me. It's all linked. And I think that, um, you know, you will end up with very wide tastes. Yeah. And the more you make music, the more you look uh, in a wider category for influences, you know. So it's incredible how, how, um, how much music there is to explore as you go through. I've always been a great fan of Van Morrison, and I loved oh, one <laughs> line that he said in an interview. And they said to him, you know, well, you're getting older now. Do you think you've stopped learning? He said, don't be so stupid. You never stop," he said. Yeah. "I will be learning about music on my deathbed, yep. and there will still be more stuff to learn. You never stop," he said. "You never close the door," he said. "You never close your ears, because you're you're in school every day. Every day you're learning. This is the great thing about this wonderful business that I'm in. It has no, you know, you can do your apprenticeship, and it goes on and on and on. Yep. You'll never stop learning, and you'll never stop being surprised." Somebody will come along and play something or do something or have some song and it just blows you away. You know, when someone like Prince comes along, you thought you knew everything about soul music. <laughs> yes. And then this guy kind of like, whoo, yeah, fires a rocket into that, yeah. you know. 
and and likewise, you know, many there's many other examples of that. I, I, you know, it's getting harder to find that because I think so much so much music, unfortunately, these days is influenced by money. Um, yeah. So it's getting harder. But I tell you that every now and then somebody on YouTube just blows me away. There's a young lady called Nadia Bushel. She's about 14 years old and she's a drummer and guitarist. And if you look up, anybody listening, if you look up her videos, she will blow you away. She does Hendrix, but, you know, as, as good as Hendrix. And she's 14 years old. You go, what? A confident youth. <laughs> yeah, but she's good as well, you know. I mean, she, and she's original. And I give, it, I give it one year before she's writing her own stuff and she'll be an artist. And there you go, you know, that's, okay. that's, how, it, that's how quickly it comes up these days. Check it out, my goodness, yeah. Oh, this is from MDR. Fantastic uh, conversation <laughs> with Mr. Leo Sayer. And um, talk about new music. You, you've been dabbling in the classics, haven't you? I see on um, the Facebook page or something, you said, I only have eyes for you. Originally made. Oh, yeah, yeah. Four, yeah, four, yeah four, no, just 420, one of 427 versions of that, Leo. <laughs> I know, I know. And we've just, another one we've done like that, for, actually for Whispering Bob Harris. We were talking earlier on, the famous, you know, BBC DJ and um, Radio 2 uh, country show now host on Radio 2 in London. Um, he's just come up with a great idea to help musicians that aren't kind of getting much help from the government during this COVID period uh, over in the UK. And he, his favourite record of all time was, was Stand By Me, Benny King. Mm. So he decided to do a multi-artist version, and I think October the 27th is the release date, so that's coming up this either this weekend or on Monday, um, and it's me and Peter Frampton and, oh, Mark Knopfler, um, Nora Jones, we're all playing on this thing, Paul Rogers... Um, we're all playing and singing on this thing, and Dwayne Eddy, and it sounds and it's fantastic. It's been a lovely project, and please God, it might do. You know, it's already getting donations up, and we're getting some money for the musicians' fund, as it's called. Um, so you know, look, classic songs yeah. are, are there. You know, I sung that actually at the Prince's Trust. Uh, alongside Benny King and I was amazed when he was singing and we were just backing him up and I was on the front of the stage yeah. and he just handed me his microphone he said I, I want Leo to sing a verse <laughs> and everybody turned around you know they all they all looked at me oh, uh, George Harrison was there and he said he said to me that's really nice Leo yeah you should yeah. <laughs> so I sang a verse and Ben was just loving it and he did harmony with me and I'm thinking crikey you know yeah. you, you you never never thought you'd be in this situation you know you you sing on up there with your heroes and and they're giving you the mic you know respect it's fantastic my goodness i've got a best of uh cd here of yours uh yes. track 10 buddy holly raining, raining my, my heart, heart. yeah yeah uh track 11 what's that come on B oh god B bobby uh, v bobby v uh more than i can say yeah did you do you play harmonica on that track um, on 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 Rain in my heart, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, that was um, that was my idea to Richard. We there was the third album with Richard Perry producing. You know, the first one was Endless Flight with You Make Me Feel Like Dancing and When I Need You on it. The second one was with it was Thunder in My Heart with Thunder in My Heart and a few of those other songs on. And the third album with Can't Stop Loving You as well. Um, Rain, Rain in My Heart was my choice. I said, Look, I always loved this song, Richard. Could we could we do a version? He said, Yeah, I love it too. Let's do it. So that's Waddy Wachtel on guitar with Lindsay Buckingham. 
as well from oh, wow. Fleetwood Mac, yes. both, both playing on that. So um, it was really lovely working with those guys and, um, and you know, so nice to pay a tribute back to your hero. Yeah, Unchained Melody, Rachel's Brothers there as well. <laughs> you do love There's hers. been so many best-ofs, I can't, I can't <laughs> think which one you're reading yeah, out. <laughs> just the best-of. Oh, Sounds flash, but it's one, not. Another great one you do is Love Hurts, of course, by the great Orbison. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was nice. I did that with a girl called Anne Dudley, who was part of the Art of Noise, and she's a great orchestrator. Mm. you know a great arranger so it was her project and um it was for a movie with griff reese and jones and mel smith yes um and it's called love hearts uh, love hurts the movie i think it was a flop actually but mm. it was lovely doing the soundtrack anyway it's been a joy to talk to you uh, leo oh and nice we'll talking to, to you man we'll have to do it again sometime I've got we, we certainly will I've well got you've your... got the coordinates so yeah. just give us a bell yeah. or send me an email just quickly i see you're doing a 220 2021 uk so good luck with that with the on these, well, we... these uncertain times man well well you know i i mean it's all booked and i'm also supposed to be doing a, a tour with jules holland at the same time that was going on at the end of this year which would have meant you know i'm singing with the Jules Holland Band and Orchestra, which is, uh, I love Jules, so it's, it's, mm. it, we're good mates, so that would have been a thrill. Um, but it's, that's been put off to 2021 as well, so I'm going to have a packed end of the year, but we still, you know, we've got to get through this COVID time, yes. so I don't know, I'm, I'm quite prepared that if things don't happen, I'll make sure I've got enough to do. I'm 72 years old now, and I'm feeling as energetic as ever, yeah. so... Um, so, you know, there's lots to do. And as I say, I'm talking to you now from my home studio and it's Very pretty much. good here. I can make records completely by myself and yeah. I'm already thinking of new ideas. And the next project is actually on the way, which is a Beatles tribute album I'm oh, doing. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, it just, it just doesn't stop. The ideas are still there as long Fantastic. as I've got the energy to do it. I love your enthusiasm. Yeah, <laughs> but well done with your radio station, man. And, and you know, the... The, uh, what you're doing is fantastic. Well, I was just going to say, you just said earlier how um, music now is influenced by money. And what's your opinion of community radio? 50% of the, of the... No, community radio is fantastic. And I think that um, artists like myself have to kind of get involved more in community radio. I've got some friends down in Shoalhaven who run a great station down there in New South Wales um, near Wollongong. And, uh, you know, I'm regularly on that that thing because you know the enthusiasm so great the other thing is you don't have a program director yes. sitting over you telling you a playlist that you've got to play and we like that yes. yep. <laughs> you know so so you're free to make your own decisions which is really good yeah. and um and i think that's really good you know uh, so so yeah we support you absolutely Thank and you. thanks for inviting me that's all right um as i said uh, the uk and ireland tour next year and 50th anniversary yes. of you and your business and i'm, not, I'm thinking about trying to get over there to see mum good old mum's 87 and she lives oh. in buckinghamshire i see you see you're playing at milton Keynes, and you we are we are we do the stables the old johnny dankworth and cleo oh, lane yes, yes, place that they wing, built yes. and it's a lovely gig i saw smashing i saw cleo lane in wing at a protest against the airport there the, back in the 60s yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah and well, um, Theo and Johnny were wonderful people Johnny's sadly no longer with us no um but you know they were great people uh and, and I love playing that venue it's it's very intimate oh, wow. and the, um yeah. it, it's not that big but you know and and some of my contemporaries would say it's too small but I love being there yeah. it's really good and you're playing at the Cadogan Hall and down the King's Road in Chelsea yeah that, that uh, look it's not my favorite London venue uh, but um but it's it because yeah, it's a bit echoey in there. But we just re last year we, I did a show, funny enough, with Van. Uh, it was on the bill as well. We were 
chatting away backstage for Lonnie Donegan. Oh, wow. And we did a tribute Jeez, to Lonnie because Lonnie was a great friend, and <laughs> I did an album with um, with Lonnie and booked all the all the superstar musicians for it, which was great yeah. fun. And uh, with Adam producing in 1977, so I knew Lonnie very well, and you know he was a godfather to all of us music wise. Yeah. So we did a show at the Cadogan Hall last year in um, I believe in October, and it was fantastic. It was really great. Can you give a couple of shout-outs for me, please? A couple of friends. Yes, of course. My friends, Julie and Christy in Beaconsfield. They're big fans of yours. So sh- hey, Beaconsfield is next to Amersham, where I used to live. Oh, yeah, it's a different thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know. Oh, you lived in Amersham, did you? And Beaconsfield is just the greatest town. You know, it, it's, got, it's, it's one of the only places I know that's got, it's got a mini town in it. It's got a, like a, uh, a yes. miniature town in Beaconsfield, which is fascinating. But you know, um, Beaconsfield's a very creative place because they have a fantastic um, uh, college there, university, an arts university. Well, this is Beaconsfield in, the, in, in Melbourne, just down the road from here. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting the wrong one. No, Bloody hell. No, I grew up in Chesham in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> I grew up in Chesham we'll be, in Buckinghamshire. We'll be finding a Gerrard's Cross in New South Wales in yeah. the end. Yeah. <laughs> no, Beaconsfield, I know it. Yes, absolutely. Well, a big shout out. Yep, thanks yeah. for listening in. Julie and Christy. Julie went and saw you at the, the Beringer Smashing. Uh, last year down at Narry Warren. Yep. Beautiful. Hiya, hiya, Julie. And Christy, yeah. And, um, and Christy. Yeah, you, so you lived in Amersham, did you? I did, yeah. I lived in Amersham, and we also lived in Buckinghamshire for some time. So, you know, it's, it's funny me now living in the country here. Of course, I'm, you know, between Canberra and, uh, and, 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 and Sydney, but we love living in... I live in a very small village here in the Southern Highlands. Birima, and it? it's very much... Yeah, and it's very much like what we did just before leaving England, we, in, in living in Amersham, the same distance um, we are here to Sydney, you know, as we were there. In fact, we make this mistake, me and Donatello, my partner, because, you know, we live together in England, we always make a mistake of when we've got to go to Sydney, oh, God, got to go to London tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, I am very crotchety. I do get mixed up. <laughs> like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I thought I was talking to... I must tell the listeners, I thought I was talking to Graham, so I sent this long email of apology. <laughs> I thought I was talking to you yesterday, and I was still in Canberra, where I was getting involved in the Canberra Hospital Foundation there, which I'm an ambassador for. We were launching a program, and the day just got longer and longer and longer. They had me doing drive-time radio in the end for Canberra, so... Um, I guess, you know, grabbing the, the interest while you can. You know, yeah. that's how it works with the airwaves. And I received an email late in the evening. <laughs> oh, man, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I don't give you my, my uh, landline. Yeah, I thought, it, I, th- I thought yesterday was Thursday. You see, I, you don't know what... No. I'm sure everybody out there listening is of the same, yeah. you know, position. If, if your job is missing at the moment and you're stuck at home and you're trying to, you know, you're doing a bit of gardening or you're doing some refurbishment on the house because that's all we can do, and, or, or just driving around to kind of keep yourselves interested. Or like that guy in Melbourne who's now done, what has he done, a thousand kilometres inside his 5K <laughs> radius. Did you read about that? <laughs> I it's a lovely story. Every day he cycles, he says, I've been down every bloody road there is in my area at least a thousand times. But he's, you know, he's covered a thousand kilometres during yeah. the COVID months. Yeah. One last question. Very impressive. One last question, Mr. Leo Sayer. Being a yes. being a posse like a pomiozzi like me. Yeah, absolutely. The, the pinnacle <laughs> of your career was it? And being, when did you come over? Oh, uh, eighty-three. So I've been here thirty-seven okay. years. Yeah, yeah. The pinnacle of pinnacle of your career was it being on the Wiggles? 
yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I work with both the Wiggles and the Muppets. <laughs> yes, right, yeah. And, um, I mean... But, they're, they're, you know, they're, no, they're all fun. I mean, the Wiggles, you know, now, the Wiggles now, especially around Murray, who was originally the, you know, the Blue Wiggle. I know he wasn't the Blue Wiggle, he was the Red Wiggle. They've got this new band now, of course, and they're, doing, they're running out and doing gigs, and yeah. they're a pretty good band, you know, so good for them. They've gone from the cockroaches to the Wiggles to this band. Yeah. So <laughs> come full circle sometimes, don't yeah. you? Anyway, I wake up, my three-year-old, my daughter and my three-year-old grandson live with us, and every time, I, every often I wake up in the morning and I can, <laughs> I can hear, you make me feel like Yeah, this. we did, yeah, we did the track with the, with them, and it was really good fun for a DVD. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah no, DVD. just really nice people. And you know Paul Field, who basically is the older brother of Anthony, who yeah. runs the Wiggles, um, he used to be the, the uh, camera director on Countdown. Oh, yeah. So, look, we've all got a, this incredible history that goes back, you know. Yeah. So when I would do Countdown in the early 70s, there was Paul Field always kind of saying, now, Liam, stand over there. No, no, go to that cross over there. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, my, can you give a shout-out to my grandson, Ashley, please? He points at the, he points at the television, well, that he's got a DVD. As I oh, young Ashley, how you doing, mate? And he's, um, <laughs> says, he says, there's Leo, so you're, you're, you're inspiring another generation, Mr. Leo Sayer. Well, watch out. I'll be waving to him next. Okay. Um, it's been fantastic, mate. As I said, we'll do it again. And no, I'll lovely talking to you, and I'm thank you very much for inviting me. And, I'm um, trying and to... hi to all the listeners there, and sounds like you've got a good crowd yeah, tuning yeah, in. Dedicated, Great. Yeah, dedicated. And uh, subscribe to the radio thought. And I might try yeah. and get to see if I'm everything at the same time. As I said, Milton Keynes is... Absolutely. Like, and is... well done getting through the restrictions, everybody. Yeah. Um, not just you, Graham, but everybody there, yeah. you know, listening in and... Thank you all for hanging in there because you've been a great example to the world. Thank you, sir. I'm going to go out with giving it all away. And, Yay! Um, I thought um, follow on very nicely with uh, a track off the Mr. Wonderful CD from Fleetwood Bax. Oh, that'd be beautiful. Second album, 96. Which track? Well, you tell me. What do you reckon? What do you reckon? Um, track five. Well, I, I, you know, my favourite track of all time, if you've got it, is Love That Burns. That's exactly what I'm playing, mate. Because that is the, you know, the sound of that guitar. Yes. It brings me to tears every time. Yeah. And, and that's the real Peter there, because apparently, so Mick Fleetwood told me, that was a first take. They took about four other versions and they went back to that one. Yeah. And isn't that incredible? And they were all live in the studio, the sax and everything. It's all live. Yeah, wonderful stuff. All right, mate, it's been a real pleasure. And watch out, <laughs> I'll be in touch with you again. And uh, Thank you, yeah, Graham. Hopefully our, crafts, our paths cross again. Oh, I'm sure they will. Yeah. I'm sure they will. I'll look out for you in England next year. Yeah, all the best. Look after yourself, mate. Love all right, buddy. Speak soon. Appreciate it. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody. So I picked up my shoes and got up and walked away Oh, I was just a boy Giving it all away Worked hard and failed Now all I can say is I threw it all away Oh, I was just a boy
heaven and all the way When out in the world Too much for my nerves Well only myself to blame See I was just a boy And there was nobody else to blame I've done all I can now It's out of my hands Stand on my head and say Ooh, I was just a boy Giving it all away Sail away Yeah, sail away
Use me, don't use me as your fool. 